Hey there, two quick but somewhat important things before we get started. The first is my upcoming release schedule. As you notice, this episode is coming out a day late. That is because our daycare provider was very suddenly put on quarantine, and that meant my child's care evaporated. So I was back to working in the podcast after kids went to bed, while they were napping, while people were eating lunch, that sort of thing. So that's been an experience, and it's not going to get a whole lot better because starting next week when my kids are off spring break, I'm suddenly homeschooling four kids again. So we'll get through this together. I am going to have weekly episodes for Crime Lines. I'm still going to do the monthly Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women cases. I just can't guarantee what day of the week they'll come out. So it may be a surprise episode shows up on a Friday sometimes. The second thing is that I want you to listen past my episode because I'm going to play a promo for a new podcast that's a Canadian investigative story. And it's a bizarre one. When Vice Canada's music editor, a character named Slava P, reached out to young journalists asking if they'd take a job, they thought he meant a freelance writing gig. Instead, he got them to smuggle over 15 million U.S. dollars of cocaine into Australia. The podcast is called Cool Mules, and it's a six-part investigative story that will give you firsthand accounts, including from Slava P. himself, as he waited to be sentenced. I'm going to play the trailer for Cool Mules at the end of the episode. Have a listen. I highly recommend you subscribe to it. Again, it's C-O-O-L-M-U-L-E-S. Look for it in your favorite podcast app. In August 2019, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places left her aunt's home in Hardin, Montana. Where she went and what she did remains unknown to her family. In fact, most of the facts of her case have been withheld or misreported by the agencies tasked with investigating. Though her family has many questions, the one they want answered the most is what happened to 18-year-old Kaysera. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to our third installment of the Third Thursday series. Every third Thursday during 2020, I will be profiling another missing or murdered Indigenous persons case. I am working with a researcher named Annie on this project. And as always, I want to thank her for her work and her guidance on this one. And also thank Grace Boltail, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places aunt, for speaking with Annie. We did use existing reporting wherever possible because we hope to minimize the re-traumatization that happens when we ask families to relive these cases. As for every episode, a full list of sources will be on the website. I will say that I'm going to say the source of information in this episode more than I usually do because there are a lot of mixed up and conflicting reports in the existing media. The police have not said much to anyone, including the local media, so they're relying largely on interviews. Let's be frank, not everyone is a reliable narrator. 
So I will probably say so-and-so said whatever more often than usual, just to keep it clear where the info is coming from. Down the road, we ever do an update episode, we'll be able to hopefully correct anything that was misreported. Today, like I said, we are talking about Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, who went missing and was later found deceased in late summer, early autumn 2019. And that's right, this case happened just months ago. Sometimes I feel in the true crime sphere, we can distance ourselves from cases that happened a long time ago, even just a decade ago. We can tell ourselves times change, policies change, and so we think, you know, it would be handled differently today. But this case, this is being handled today, and we're going to talk about how it's being handled. But let's start with Kaysera. She grew up in a traditional indigenous family. She had a number of tribal affiliations, but she was enrolled with the Crow tribe with close connections to the Northern Cheyenne tribe. Both of these tribes have reservations in this southeastern part of Montana we're talking about. Kaysera's parents were Geraldine Bulltail and Alan Stops, though she was raised by several family members in this traditional structure. And that's going to include her great-grandparents, her aunts, her uncles, and her grandmother, Yolanda Fraser, who was her legal guardian. Kaysera turned 18 on August 14th, 2019, and she was a senior in high school. She was a really friendly person, very outgoing. She's been described as a beautiful soul who had so much potential. And just to give you a glimpse of this potential, Kaysera was in choir and drama. She had roles in the school productions, and she hoped one day to become an actress or a performer. She had the right personality for it. But on the other hand, she also ran cross-country. She played basketball and football, and she wrestled. She had talents in a number of directions. Kaysera liked to work hard. She would pick up jobs wherever she could. She looked forward to being an adult with a real job. She participated in field research with her aunt, Grace Bulltail. Grace was doing her postdoc research in things that I'm not smart enough to understand or explain. And Kaysera was just such an impressive young woman to be able to jump in and help with this. Kaysera also participated since the age of 14 in one of the most sacred crow ceremonies, Sundance. It is not my place to explain what the ceremony is, but I will address some of the history surrounding it. Sundance is a sacred ceremony that is not exclusive to the Crow tribe. So in Canada, the full ceremony was prohibited until 1951. But it was not until August 1978 that Jimmy Carter signed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act into law that allowed the ceremony to be conducted publicly. So to sum up, the United States that yells religious freedom from the rooftop every time a baker doesn't want to sell a wedding cake to a gay couple had to pass a law to allow the free practice of religion for Native Americans. The same ceremonies, let's note, that were occurring on this continent long before colonization. Sacred ceremonies 
predate our Constitution. But if we want to look at it from that perspective, this is basic civil rights. First Amendment. First line of the First Amendment. Yet we had to pass an act to say the First Amendment applies to Native American tribes. This act, though, it's not perfect. And as I look at the case law from this act, I'm going to say it's not actually that great. It is not really protecting people's constitutional rights. The thing it did accomplish was that it allowed for more of these sacred ceremonies to be performed. And the tribes also can perform them on sacred land, provided the federal government doesn't want to build a road straight through that sacred land. Like I said, the case law, that's a legal rabbit hole I could make an entire podcast about. But let's bring it back to the point. The point is that Kaysera was able to, from a young age, participate in important and sacred ceremonies openly. And that is something that is fairly new to indigenous communities in North America. To grow up where practicing your beliefs is actually allowed is a first and second generation experience for Native Americans. And it was an experience Kaysera participated in, and it connected her to her family, her tribe, her culture. So now that we have a grasp on who Kaysera was and the community connection she had, let's talk about when she went missing. It was about 10 days or so after she turned 18, she went to Hardin, Montana, and stayed with her aunt, Priscilla Bulltail. And to be clear, when I'm saying aunt, or when my accent comes out, aunt, I'm saying this to designate the relation as the sister of Kaysera's mom. I know that many women in the family considered their role as a mother to Kaysera, and I do not mean to devalue that in any way when I'm saying that Priscilla and Grace were her aunts. I'm just making the story easier to understand and to follow by following the strict family tree terms. Kaysera had lived in Hardin, so she liked to stay with Priscilla when she could to visit with her friends and family. Staying for the weekend was pretty normal. According to some of the early reports, Kaysera was supposed to meet up with her mom, Geraldine, to go to North Dakota on or around the 25th to visit a relative, and then she was going to go back to Missoula, where she would complete her senior year. On Saturday, August 24th, 2019, Kaysera left Priscilla's house with a friend, who has not been named because the friend is a minor, but there were also two unknown adults with them. Kaysera's Aunt Grace has done her own investigation. She did find out that the friend was interviewed by the police later on, but we don't know what she told them or if she identified these other people they were with. At some point, Kaysera's friend and one of the adults stopped back at Priscilla's house, but without Kaysera. The reason for them being at the house has either not been investigated or it's just not been released. Nothing about Kaysera's movements that night has been made public. We don't know where she went or who she was with. The next morning, which would be Sunday, August 25th, Kaysera didn't come back to Priscilla's house. She was expected back since she was going back to Missoula very soon, but she didn't show. Priscilla said she went to the Bighorn County Police to report Kaysera missing 
right away. But they told her there was a waiting period before she could. Bighorn County denies that they were ever contacted this early, and the rest of Kaysera's family have this big question about this. Did Bighorn County drop the ball on August 25th, or did Priscilla not actually try to report her missing that early? For what it's worth, Montana doesn't have a waiting period, and their missing child law goes up to the age of 21, and Kaysera had just turned 18. She lived in Montana, and her family didn't know where she was. Those are the entire requirements to be reported missing in Montana. If Priscilla contacted the police to report someone who was under the age of 21 missing, the police were supposed to fill out the missing persons report, and then they had two hours to fulfill some other obligations. They had to inform all on-duty law enforcement about the missing child. They needed to send the report to all the law enforcement agencies with jurisdiction in the county and then enter the missing child report into NCIC, which is the National Crime Database. None of this happened until more like August 27th. We know it was on or around August 27th that the missing persons report was officially filed. And the day after that, Priscilla posted on Facebook saying that Kaysera had not been seen, she had not checked in, which was very unlike her. She was just basically asking for anyone who saw her to reach out and let her know. At this point, Kaysera was missing for four days. On August 29th, the day after the Facebook post, a man was jogging in a residential part of Hardin and saw a body next to a wood pile in a backyard. He immediately called the police who came out to the scene. Priscilla said she had somehow heard that a body was found, which wouldn't be that surprising. This is a small town. Word of mouth spreads pretty quickly in a town of fewer than 4,000 people. She said she went to the scene and asked about the body found, wanting to know if it was Kaysera or not, and she was not allowed to look to make an ID. She also did not tell anyone else in the family about this, and it is possible she did that because she didn't want to upset them when she didn't know anything for sure. And this wasn't in the media, so the family at this point was completely in the dark, except they knew no one had heard from Kaysera for a few days. The owner of the house is a guy named Steve, and he was not home when the body was found. He told the Billings Gazette that he was in Billings that day to buy auto parts when his son called him. His son told him there was a body that had been found in his backyard, and his brain did not go to human body. He was thinking maybe someone shot a bear in his yard, or someone hit an animal that then ran into his yard. He said he was shocked to find out that it was actually a woman. Two days after the body was found, so we're at August 31st, a family member called Yolanda Fraser. If you remember, Yolanda is Kaysera's guardian and grandmother. Someone had posted on Twitter about a body being found in Hardin and how it was one of the Stops kids. Kaysera's surname is sometimes referred to as Stops, so Yolanda called Geraldine and Priscilla and asked them to check into this and figure out what was going on. 
So the next day, the two women went to Bullis Mortuary. Terry Bullis, who runs the funeral home, is also the county coroner. Once there, the women say they were told the body was not Kaysera. Relieved, they left. They got back to their family and community organized searches for Kaysera. They had little to no help from the Bighorn County authorities on these searches, and the family was under the impression Kaysera was being marked as a runaway. And I have to say, I think they're right because the police never entered Kaysera into the databases, even though Montana's Missing Child Act requires them to do so. This has been confirmed by the family that she was never entered into any of these databases. There's no reason not to do it unless they didn't actually consider Kaysera missing and assumed she was a runaway or she was out partying with friends and would come home when she got tired. The family continued their searching until September 11th, when Persilia was contacted by the police and told Kaysera's body had been found. Two weeks before, next to the woodpile in a man's backyard. So can you even imagine this? Geraldine and Persilia braced themselves to go down to that funeral home, and they were told the rumors were false, the body was not Kaysera. But it was. And for whatever reason, she remained unidentified for weeks, even though the body absolutely fit Kaysera's description. They should have at least been told it was a possibility pending testing. Persilia was the one who was contacted about the positive identification even though she was not Kaysera's parent or guardian. Bighorn County did not make an official death notification to Kaysera's parents or her legal guardian. They left it to Priscilla to make those phone calls. The next day, Geraldine went to the funeral home, Bullis Funeral Home, and she was told if she wanted her daughter's remains back, she would have to have Kaysera cremated. And at this point, Kaysera's body is in Billings, at the state crime lab for an autopsy. So who is telling Geraldine she has to have her cremated? Terry Bullis is. He's the owner of Bullis Mortuary, the funeral home, and he's also the county coroner. The county coroner is an elected position, and my first thought when I read this was that this sounds like a conflict of interest for the county coroner to also run a for-profit funeral business. He could push business his way since he was already in contact with families immediately after someone's death. Of course, just because there is the potential for abuse of the system like that, that doesn't mean there will be. So we are going to give Bullis the benefit of the doubt for about the next minute or two. Okay, so Bullis told Geraldine she would have to have Kaysera cremated to get her remains back. Cremation goes against the family's beliefs. They were also told they would not be allowed to view Kaysera's body, which prevented them from performing any type of cultural ceremony, which then complicated their grieving process. And I can't imagine that Bullis did not know that these were important. Bighorn County is 65% indigenous. The Crow Reservation is in the county. The Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation also takes up a bit of space. 
he had to know how important these ceremonies are. And if he didn't know, he should have found out because that's your job when you're a funeral director. You don't have to know every custom of every culture, but we're talking 65% of the population. It's not entirely clear the order of what happened next, but Gerilyn must have agreed to the cremation at some point, likely just eager to get her daughter's remains back. But the rest of the family, including Kaysera's legal guardian and her father, were not part of the decision. Bullis also refused to speak to the family about what was going on with Kaysera's case until they paid him for his services as a funeral director. Okay, so we decided to give it a minute before I brought up this conflict of interest again, but here we are. He's the coroner. He needs to talk to the family regardless of his business relationship with them. The family eventually asked that Dahl Funeral Home in Billings take over and handle their arrangements, but Bullis pushed back and wouldn't transfer it. He handled the arrangements, which included the cremation. It's unclear in all of this when he's acting as a coroner and when he's acting as a funeral director. And you have to wonder if the authority of his office pressures families to go along with him even if he's trying not to mean it that way. He has an investigative ability, and he's telling the family what they should do. How are they to know that these are recommendations and not the law when he's also part of the law? We do have indication that Terry Bullis does not draw the line between his roles well, and he should know better because he's been in hot water for this before. In January 2002, Bullis, as coroner, took the body of 21-year-old Toy Parker to his funeral home. Toy had died in a car accident. He then embalmed her body without the permission of her family. And you heard me correctly. He embalmed a body without being asked to do so. But it actually gets better, and by better, I mean worse. He billed the family for the service. He refused to release Toy's body to her family for services at the funeral home of their choice until they paid him $410 for this service they didn't ask for and they did not want. For the record, embalming is not required by law in Montana and certainly wouldn't have needed to be done immediately. The state law says that after 48 hours, a body must be refrigerated or embalmed. Bullis did this embalming before Toy's family had even been given the death notification later the same day. So Toy's grandmother filed a complaint against Bullis in 2002. Bullis's defense was that he thought embalming preserved evidence better, and he didn't know how long it was going to take to find Toy's family. But there are a few issues with this defense. One, they found the family the same day. It's not like that 48-hour clock was ticking yet. And second, if he was embalming her to preserve evidence as the coroner, why was the family billed by his funeral home for that service? Wouldn't the county pay the bill if it was supposedly needed for an investigation? 
The charges against Bullis in this complaint were failing to release human remains on demand, charging for services that were not requested, and using his role as a county coroner to funnel business into his funeral home. These are not criminal charges to be perfectly clear. This was always an administrative issue. In a compromise deal reached over a year later, Bullis did not have to admit fault, but he did have to return the money to the family, and he was placed on professional probation for a year. He then had to take eight hours of ethics classes, and this is a sweetheart deal because he was facing having his mortician's license revoked. Before Terry Bullis, there was John Bullis, his father. He was the coroner for 50 years while he also owned the family funeral home. So this dual role is pretty well established in Bighorn County. I am going to give a brief defense of Bullis as the coroner in the interest of being fair. He is charged with determining the when, the where, the how of a death, and also the manner of death, natural accident, suicide, homicide. If he cannot determine this without an autopsy, he is meant to send the body to the state medical examiner to perform one. Bighorn County actually sends a higher percentage of bodies for autopsies than most of the state. So whatever Bullis's faults, he seems quicker than some of the other coroners in the state to rely on autopsies to get that full scientific understanding before making his determinations, and that's a plus, and he did send Kaysera for an autopsy. On September 14th, the family finally learned where Kaysera's body had been found. They knew the basic intersection, but they didn't know exactly where. When they had gone out to the scene a day or two before this, they kind of expected to see some clue as to where she had been found. Something like little crime scene tape left behind something. But there was nothing. But they talked to a neighbor who I believe was an extended family relation who then got them to the right spot. And let's just say they were pretty surprised at where she was found. We are not talking some tucked away neighborhood or a huge yard where her body was even somewhat hidden. A jogger passing by saw her, and pretty much anyone who walked past would have. This is an active neighborhood with people coming and going constantly. The family was able to talk to the jogger while they were out there because he lived close by, and he told them two things that stood out to them. One was that the police pulled a phone out of Kaysera's pocket at the scene, but it was dead. The jogger then told the police that they should charge it, and they could probably find her family through the contacts on the phone, which the police did not do. The second thing he said was that the scene was never closed off. There was never any crime scene tape. And the police did later confirm both of these points, the phone and the scene not being secured. On the second point, the crime scene not being secured, their defense was that it didn't need to be because the responding officers were the investigating officers. It's not like a patrol officer got there first and had to hold down the fort until the detectives got there. They were there from the start, and they stayed at the scene until it was cleared and released. 
Therefore, no need to secure. Finding the spot where Kaysera's body was found allowed the family to perform a cultural ceremony. Again, I feel like this is something the investigator should have been aware of and should have helped the family find that spot sooner. Anyway, the family was not able to speak with the homeowner, and they had and still have a lot of questions for him. Like, is it even possible that he didn't see her for the whole time she was missing? Investigators seem to think that she was there that whole time, but it seems unlikely. If we knew when he last mowed his lawn or cooked out on the grill or something, that might help make things make more sense on a timeline. On September 16th, Yolanda, as the legal guardian, sat down with Melissa Schlichting. She is a member of Montana's Missing Indigenous Persons Task Force that was formed in June of 2019, so just months beforehand. This is where Yolanda learned that there should not have been a waiting period for reporting Kaysera missing. So if Persilia did do that and they told her that, that was wrong. Kaysera's case should have been a priority since she was under 21. And Yolanda feeling like that's not what happened. She asked if she could get the paperwork on Kaysera's missing persons report, and she was told she would get it in a few days. That same day, the family's having visitation with Kaysera's remains ahead of her funeral, and so Yolanda went to the funeral home. She had been told Kaysera's remains would be returned from the state lab that day. She and other family members got there, only to learn from Terry Bullis's sister that Kaysera's remains wouldn't be there for another 45 minutes. The family waited. Nothing. So then the family was told, basically, that the funeral home did not know when the remains would be ready for the visitation and wasn't even sure if they'd be back in time for the funeral the next day. And then the family was told the funeral home was closing soon as it was nearly 4 p.m. at this point. The family was not having it. They refused to leave the funeral home until... Kaysera's remains arrived, and they did around 5.30 p.m. And this is when Yolanda and Kaysera's father, Alan, learned that she had been cremated. They did not know. Geraldine had made the decision very likely out of just a deep desire to get her daughter back. It's not because it's what she wanted, but she thought she was being told that was the only way to get her back. Not only were Yolanda, Ellen, and the rest of the family now struggling with the cultural and spiritual implications of burial versus cremation, they're also wondering about something a little bit more temporal, like having cremated the remains while the case was still under investigation. After the visitation that evening, Terry Bullis told the family that the autopsy report would take three to four weeks and that the death certificate wouldn't be issued until the autopsy and the toxicology report were done. And then he said that the report would likely show death by exposure to a substance, whether drugs or alcohol. There is no way he could have known this. If he did, he wouldn't have had to send her for an autopsy. It sounds unprofessional, and it is definitely unkind to speculate in this way to a grieving family. None of this is sitting right with the family, and they knew they needed more information, and they were going to have to get it themselves. So after Kaysera's funeral, Yolanda and Alan filed a formal request for all reports and documents for Kaysera's case. 
They also went to the local paper, the Billings Gazette, because there was zero coverage of this. A body was found in a nice residential neighborhood, and it turned out to be a missing 18-year-old. Why wasn't there at least a blurb about it? When someone in the family finally got in touch with a reporter there, they learned that the paper didn't know about the case. They make daily contact with the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department to get updates and scoops, and no one mentioned it to them. Not even when Kaysera was a missing child did they say anything to the paper about it. It was on September 19th when the family first spoke to the investigating officer, Captain Mike Fuss. Right before this meeting, Grace was out at the site where Kaysera was found, and she found a cell phone, so she called the police to report it. When the family walked into Captain Mike Fuss's office on the 19th, he thought they were there to talk about the phone. But the family had actually been trying to talk to him from long before that. We're talking over a week since they were told Kaysera's body was found, and this is the first contact with the person in charge of the case, even though they had been trying to get in touch with him. Some of this confusion may be that Captain Fuss did not have a good grasp on the family dynamic, and he did at some point talk to Priscilla. He told them in this meeting that he thought Priscilla was Kaysera's legal guardian. When Yolanda pushed back, basically saying, I have guardianship papers, did she? Captain Fuss then said Priscilla represented herself as Kaysera's mother. So he hadn't talked to either of Kaysera's biological parents, who were both in her life, or her grandmother, who had on paper legal custody. Perhaps Priscilla did misrepresent herself. Perhaps Captain Fuss made assumptions. Perhaps Priscilla was speaking as Kaysera's mother in a broader sense. We don't know where the confusion happened, but had Captain Fuss returned those phone calls, he would have realized it earlier. And as for not returning those phone calls, he said he was busy with other cases. Annie, the wonderful Crime Lines researcher, helped pull some crime stats for the area, and violent crime isn't higher than average there. And the entire county has 13,000 people in it. We have a suspicious death of a young woman in a town that has one or two murders a year. The entire county's population is smaller than pretty much every town or city I've lived in, so you have to wonder what case or cases were taking priority. So we did a little more digging on Bighorn County policing. A huge issue for them currently isn't the population size, but the density or lack of density. As in, they are very widely spread out and often only have two patrol officers on duty for any given shift, and they're covering 5,000 acres of the county. Editing Charlie squeaking in here, I realized I was not clear on what these 5,000 acres are. It doesn't sound like a lot, but because the reservations take up around 70% of the county, these 5,000 acres the sheriff has jurisdiction over aren't all clumped together. Hardin, the biggest town, often needs both officers responding there, leaving the more remote areas completely uncovered. Okay, I just wanted to clear that up. Back to the episode. Captain Fuss has been advocating for more resources, so I'm wondering if 
It wasn't that he was aggressively working other cases, but more he was doing other generic police work that he didn't have the staff to do. But this delayed meeting did mean the family had a couple weeks worth of questions, especially about what the jogger told them. It was this meeting when they were told that the scene wasn't secured because the investigators got there first. This may be Bighorn County's policy and procedure, but it still doesn't mean it's best practice in policing. The family then asked about Sarah's phone, which the jogger said was taken out of her pocket. Captain Fuss said the battery was dead, so the family followed it up by asking why he didn't charge it or call the family and ask for the charger if he didn't have the right one, and then he could look through texts and calls and social media. Captain Fuss said that the type of phone Kaysera had was one they could not get into, not even the FBI could crack it. And this is erroneous information. It used to be nearly impossible to get through an iPhone without cooperation from Apple or the phone user. But the FBI has been able to bypass passcodes since at least early 2018. And that's if they honestly needed to break into the phone. They didn't need that here because Kaysera wasn't a suspect. She was the victim. The family gave full consent to get into Kaysera's phone and social media. So there aren't privacy laws protecting it. And the family still, to this day, does not know if they ever got into the phone. For six months, investigators have had family permission to get into the phone, and the family has not been told what, if anything, was found on it. Now, at this point in the meeting, the family starts hearing about other issues with the investigation. They found out a little bit more about why Kaysera's remains were not at the funeral home in time for visitation. Captain Fuss said that Bullis snatched Kaysera's body from the crime lab, and the police had to go to the funeral home to take it back to the crime lab. So it sounds like there was stuff behind the scenes the family didn't know about. They have not gotten a good answer as to why there was such a lack of communication between the coroner slash funeral home and the investigators. This will not be the only time someone on the law enforcement side of things says something to the family about Bullis's behavior. There is absolutely something going on there. And another issue that came up, the family learned in this meeting that the lead investigator on Kaysera's case, the original one, stepped aside very early on because, according to Captain Fuss, he couldn't handle it. The family then told Captain Fuss that they posted a $5,000 reward for any information in the case leading to an arrest and conviction. And they said Captain Fuss seemed put off and annoyed that they did this. It's not unusual for family to raise a private reward. But they usually do it with an open dialogue with police so that law enforcement is prepared for the increase in tips that will come when people see a reward posted. But since Bighorn County wasn't returning their calls, the family didn't have an option to do this cooperatively. They didn't have an option to coordinate their effort with Bighorn County. They tried, but what were they going to do? Sit around and wait for a callback? We know the early days of an investigation are important. They wanted to get it out there. The police were not responding, so they just did it. So at the same time, Alan and Yolanda are having what they found to be a very frustrating meeting with Captain Fuss. 
Grace and another sister are meeting with the Bighorn County attorney, Jay Harris. And when I say county attorney, I don't mean on the civil side. This is like a district attorney, a criminal attorney. There was also a victim slash witness specialist at the meeting, basically like a victim services liaison. Jay Harris indicated that there were issues behind the scenes. He said he wasn't even sure who the lead investigator on Kaysera's case was at that point because of general turmoil and reorganization within the department. Grace said that she felt Harris was being dismissive of the family's concerns, that the investigation wasn't being handled properly, even as he's acknowledging that there were issues. He basically asked how the family knew nothing was being done. But I think we can flip that question. How do they know anything was being done when the family hadn't even been interviewed? As her family, they hadn't been asked about her movements, her friends in Hardin, any intimate partner, any history of substance abuse, none of that. So why would they think anything was being done when you would expect to be among the first people they talk to and you can't even get the investigator on the phone when you call? Bullis's name came up in this meeting and Harris mentioned that there may be a conflict of interest with the coroner also being the owner of the funeral home. But it's been like that in Bighorn County for decades. Bullis has an ethics violation for this conflict, but no one's doing anything about it. So even if the concern is there, even if the what if is there, it all feels a little hollow when it's allowed to continue. Harris then said Bullis has a reputation to quickly rule cause of death as either exposure to alcohol or natural causes, and that did not give the family a lot of comfort. The day after these meetings, meetings that were not as productive as the family had hoped, the Billings Gazette ran a story. Their tweet about the story, which is still up today with no correction posted, said that Kaysera's body was found wrapped in plastic. We don't have confirmation of this, It does not appear to be reported elsewhere, but why would there not be a retraction or a correction if this information was wrong? Wrapped in plastic is a lot more ominous because that definitely points to someone else being involved. So the family now has this article coming out, but they need more awareness to this case. That's just where we are. So the family held a community march on September 23rd. They started at the house where Kaysera's body was found. Flowers were placed against the chain-link fence of the yard, and then they marched, chanting for justice for Kaysera. They ended in front of Bighorn County Courthouse, where they then held a rally. Northern Cheyenne Tribal President Rhinalia Penna-Whiteman led the crowd in a chant for justice. She also read a letter she wrote to County Attorney Jay Harris offering the tribe support in the investigation. It does not appear this offer of assistance was taken up. The march and rally did bring awareness to the case, but it's hard to say if it moved the needle on the actual investigation. The family then decided they wanted to get the death certificate for Kaysera. This is an important legal document. You need it to deal with any financial issues after someone's death. And a lot of families need them quickly, You're looking at filing for Social Security in some cases, taking over bank accounts, filing life insurance, that sort of thing. So you might be wondering, 
what happens when you can't fill out the cause or manner of death because it's under investigation? Simple. They mark it pending investigation and still issue the death certificate so the family has this very important legal document. It is a little bit more paperwork later on to amend it, which is legally required in order to keep the information as accurate as possible for national statistics. Once the investigation is over, they're supposed to then change the death certificate and refile. But Terry Bullis discouraged the family from getting the initial one issued before the end of the investigation because he said the process would be too complicated. And I cannot say for sure, maybe Montana has its own issues with this, but generally speaking, you just file the pending investigation one. Amending it later is a matter of paperwork, and this is a county of 13,000 people. It can't be that much more work. Maybe it is. I mean, I did check with someone. It's a listener who would know what she's talking about, and she said it's not a big deal. The family decided to sidestep Bullis. As you can imagine, there's not a lot of trust being built here. And they went right to the clerk and recorder office to order the death certificate anyway. She pointed them back to Bullis, who then pointed them back. And it was this oddly confusing situation for something that happens literally every day, everywhere else in the country, without issue. My mind is a little blown that even getting the death certificate is complicated. Eventually, the clerk and recorder office just took the notarized application and mailed it in. Literally all they needed to do. This doesn't have a lot to do with the case, and it may seem weird that I included it in an episode that's already going to be a long one, but I just couldn't leave it out because this really shows you how difficult of a time the family is having just doing simple things like getting a death certificate. Okay, so now back to the investigation a little bit. There was a tip line set up for Sarah's case, but Yolanda didn't think it was being monitored properly, so she had her son call to try it out. That's where we are with this. The family cannot even trust the tip line was being monitored. So her son called, said he had a tip, and he was told there was no officer available to take it, and I think I've already mentioned their staffing issues. He was told he would be called back at 7 p.m. for someone to take the tip, but he didn't receive the call until 9.30. Now, there are some major problems with not staffing a tip line. You almost might as well not have it. First, you're requiring the person to give their name and phone number to get a call back, which is something they may not want to do. If they want to stay anonymous, they have to call back again later, hoping they catch someone there. There have been tipsters in the past in other cases I've covered, mostly on Insight with all those cold cases we did. These are tipsters who will call something in and they'll say they'll call back later, but they never do because they used up all of their courage making the first call. These issues are literally what led to Crime Stoppers programs getting started. We've had one in Kansas City for nearly 40 years, so this is not a new problem. Staffing a tip line, making sure it's accessible, making sure it's anonymous, those are existing problems and solutions were found for them decades ago. No one is being blindsided by this. 
These staffing issues are a massive issue in Bighorn County, and I have a feeling they might finally get the resources they need to fix them because they're now affecting police safety. In February 2020, three men escaped from county jail by having one of their girlfriends call 911 to pull one of the two deputies on guard out of the building. When he left, the men overpowered the lone officer. You have to hope now that their own are getting assaulted and harmed. Someone is going to find a way to get Bighorn County the money they need to protect the community. State of Montana, federal government, I don't know funding. That is not my wheelhouse. Someone get them some money. Someone hire them another police officer. This is ridiculous. Now let's get off that tangent and get back to what we're talking about. So we're back in late September. Yolanda and Allen had a sit-down with Bighorn County Sheriff Larry Bighair. And Sheriff Bighair did hear them out on their concerns. Everything from not being notified the body could be Kaysera to Bullis moving the body when he shouldn't. And he even had them write up their experience with the less-than-helpful meeting with Captain Mike Fuss. But when they did submit their letter about the meeting, they didn't get a response, even though the sheriff seemed somewhat receptive in the meeting. When the family asked why the FBI hadn't been brought in, Sheriff Big Hair said they could be if that's what the family wanted. I know most of our experience with the FBI coming in on these state cases is because state lines were crossed. But this is a different story. We need to talk about federal trust responsibility. By law, the federal government has obligations to the Native American tribes. This law has been upheld and refined in the Supreme Court for almost 200 years. This gives the FBI jurisdiction for crimes committed on reservations. The family contacted the FBI, who said they will not get involved because Kaysera was not found on the reservation, and there's no proof the crime happened there. Just because Kisera was indigenous, they're saying this didn't mean they had jurisdiction. But there is no proof a crime happened on the reservation because the family doesn't know her movements that night. Either it hadn't been investigated by late September, or it was, and the family was being kept in the dark, so they didn't even have the information to give the FBI. I wish I could show you a map right now to show you how much of Bighorn County is the Crow Indian Reservation. It's just south of Hardin. You can step over the border from Hardin, and you're on the reservation. From Hardin to Crow Agency, which is a residential area on the reservation, it's a 15-20 minute drive. Being that Kaysera was a member of the Crow tribe, as were her friends and her family, there is a better than good chance she was on the reservation that night. That's where a full investigation into her whereabouts needed to be done and turned over to the FBI. Or the FBI can make a few calls, and should they determine they do not have jurisdiction, turn everything back to Bighorn County. It seems like there needs to be more of an investigation to know who does have jurisdiction. But the case was taken away from Bighorn County. On October 1st, County Attorney Jay Harris formed a task force to look into missing and murdered cases in Bighorn County. The task force would look at active cases and also examine policy. This wouldn't just be for the sheriff's department. 
It was meant to look at everything from local and tribal law enforcement and then up to state and federal interactions. Specifically relating to Kaysera, it gave the county attorney's office the ability to take over the investigation since it was considered a suspicious death. So now the case is in the county attorney's hands, and the family was told any information they wanted had to come through a formal request. You would hope this wouldn't be a common occurrence, that investigators would sit down and give family updates, that sort of thing, but this isn't that uncommon. I've talked to plenty of families who weren't given hardly any communication until they submitted full-on FOIA requests, a step up to at least let the family know they can apply for copies of everything. Not every investigator will tell the family they can do that. Except, in this case, the family and their attorney have been attempting to get documents in September and October, including submitting tips and questions the family had that they were told they could submit, and they got nothing, not even a response acknowledging receipt of the request. So telling the family to submit their requests and then not responding isn't exactly helpful. But there's more. On November 19th, the family managed to get a sit-down with attorney Jay Harris again. He's had the case for, what, five, six weeks at this point? Yolanda showed him the news article about him taking over suspicious death investigations, but he said he couldn't give them much information because it was an open investigation. Yolanda asked why they hadn't gotten any of the reports they asked for, and Harris said they did not fill out the right forms. So they were told to submit their requests formally, and then they weren't even told that there was a form until they asked. And I personally have never filled out a very specific form for a FOIA request, but again, maybe Montana handles things differently. The family felt during this meeting that Harris was being defensive throughout. He didn't like that they were referring to Kaysera's death as a murder, but, I mean, her body was found in a backyard in a residential area. You would be hard-pressed to convince me that she got there on her own. There are times when someone dies of something else, like an accident or a drug overdose, where people panic and they try to move the body somewhere to avoid responsibility for their role in whatever happened. But I would say this happens less often than murder happens. Most people will still call 911 if it's an accident. I don't see characterizing what happened to Kaysera as a likely murder is really a huge leap. The family did get one answer they were looking for in this meeting, they were finally told that there was a gap in the investigation. Between that first investigating officer stepping down and Captain Mike Fuss taking it on, there was a period very early on where no one was doing anything, and we all listened to enough true crime to know how important the early days and weeks of an investigation are. It is shocking how quickly memories fade, especially when someone doesn't know what they saw or heard was significant. I may not remember hearing a car peeling out of my neighborhood two weeks ago, but if you asked me the morning after it happened, I would probably not only remember it, but I would remember that I heard it while I was watching the 10 o'clock news. Those short-term memories that our brain kicks out so fast, those can't ever be made up for. So let's move to December. There's still no autopsy report, even though it's past the 16 weeks. 
Grace tried to get more information from Terry Bullis, and he said the investigation was not with him anymore. The county attorney had taken it over. Grace pointed out that she paid him, so he should be able to talk to her, but then he said she paid him as a funeral director and was asking him questions as the coroner so he couldn't help her. But let's rewind real quick to September. The family said Bullis told them they had to pay him for the funeral arrangements before he could talk to them. But now that Grace is saying literally the same thing, we paid you so now you can talk to us, he's wanting to separate out those roles a little. It's unclear which role he was acting in when he took Kaysera's body from the crime lab before they were done, or which one he was acting as when he wouldn't transfer Kaysera's funeral arrangements to Billings, or which one he was when he told Geraldine that Kaysera had to be cremated. There are fuzzy lines everywhere when it comes to Terry Bullis, the coroner, and Terry Bullis, the funeral director. As for the cremation, Grace pushed Bullis on this, and she said he admitted that he told Geraldine that cremation was how they could get Kaysera's remains back. And then Grace asked if it was the only way. Bullis replied that it was the simplest and easiest way. And that tells me what we expected. It wasn't the only way. It was the way that went against the family's traditions and beliefs. So I would be surprised if Geraldine would have agreed to it if she knew there was another option. So now, as I'm telling you guys about Kaysera's case, it's such a recent one. I'm definitely wondering how many of you have heard about her case before. I follow missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls cases, and I never heard of it until another girl went missing and her case blew up in the media. On January 1st, 16-year-old Selena Not Afraid, an indigenous girl from Hardin, went missing. I followed Selena's case fairly closely because it was pretty big news. It was coming through my news feed pretty regularly. And it has some alarming parallels to Kaysera's case in circumstance, but not entirely in the response, which is interesting. Selena was last seen around 2 p.m. on New Year's Day at a rest stop between Billings and Hardin. It's 45 minutes from Billings to Hardin, but it is 45 minutes of highway driving of mostly nothing in all directions. While in this remote area, the van that Selena was in pulled over into a rest stop. There have been a few stories about exactly what happened. One story is that they were having car troubles. Selena and another young woman with her stayed at the rest stop after the van was restarted and the other four people left. The man driving the van called someone else, I think it was his mother, to go to the rest stop to pick up Selena and her friend. When she got there, Selena was gone, and it was just the other young woman still there. The reason they stayed behind was supposedly because the man thought the van would stall out again, and he wanted the two picked up in a more reliable vehicle. The other story is that the two young women were kicked out of the van and left there. The family has said that the other girl said Selena was last seen running towards trees in the field. And please do not picture a forest. Or even a grove. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to call this a clump of trees. It's not much if you're thinking she's running to hide or to disappear in the woods or to avoid something. There's really nowhere to go. The family was also told 
that the other young woman was found hiding in the ditch along the highway with no shoes on and only vague memories of what happened. But those details have not been confirmed at this point. One thing that I fact-checked thoroughly was the time Selena went missing. I assumed it was the early morning hours. It was New Year's Day, so out with friends, maybe going to a couple parties. In the overnight hours, going home, the car broke down. But that is not what anything reporting it is saying. They are all saying it happened at 2 p.m. That is two and a half hours before sundown. I checked, I did the math. Selena wandered away from a remote rest stop onto a very flat and sparsely treed field in daylight and completely vanished. So not only are these stories inconsistent, they frankly don't make sense. Selena's family and community launched a massive search, including using a drone with a very good camera to go over the fields, and no one found anything. Then on January 20th, we're talking almost three weeks later, the authorities were doing a grid search and found Selena's body around 10.30 a.m., about a mile from where she was last seen. The family has said that this is an area that was covered on their searches and Selena's body was not there. So this is another case we have of someone being missing and then found somewhere other people had gone by and hadn't seen her. Selena's cause of death was ruled to be exposure, and there were no signs of violence on her. It got down into the 20s and 30s overnight. There was a small amount of rain, which would also lower the threshold for developing hypothermia. She certainly wasn't dressed for those temperatures. Having a cause of death certainly doesn't answer all the questions we have. And I think we're all side-eyeing the people in the van. Have they said everything they know? And that's a question we can also apply to Kaysera's case. Grace thinks that is happening in Kaysera's case, and my guess is she's right. There are people Kaysera was with who could probably say more or reach out to Grace to give her the information she wants. But there may even be family members, including Priscilla, who know more than they're saying. There have been times Priscilla had information that she did not pass on to the family, and there are things that she never told them. Grace learned online that Priscilla saw Kaysera leave with three people and that the minor friend and one of the adults came back without Kaysera. Why didn't Priscilla ask more questions? Why are those people at the house? What are they doing? Where's Kaysera? And did she really go and try to report her missing so early? Does she have an idea of where Kaysera may have been and she's just not saying? And these are big questions. No one can really start healing until they're answered. There needs to be a full accounting of everything people know. No amount of the truth is going to be worse than what's happening right now. That Kaysera's case is at risk of growing cold because people aren't being forthright. There are reasons people keep stories to themselves. And in marginalized communities, one of the biggest reasons is the police aren't asking. Relationships with the police have historically been bad within marginalized communities. It takes time and it takes working on a community level for a police force to rebuild lost trust. So many people are not going to volunteer, go down to the station, or call in and leave a tip. They don't want to get involved. But... If they get asked, 
If they get directly asked, they will answer. So the solution is pretty simple. You have to investigate. The family has a million frustrations with how this is being handled. We've covered most of them, but here's another. They have gotten flat-out wrong information from the authorities. So not only are they asking for information they're not getting, when they do get information, it's not always accurate. For instance, Grace was told Sarah's autopsy occurred two days before she was found. That causes a lot of confusion. At some point, the family found out that Sarah's death date was being set at August 26th, which was two days after she was last seen, and the family does not agree with that. She had plans on the 25th, and if she could have kept them, she would have, and if she couldn't, she would have called. So where was she for these two days she was supposedly alive? Does the police have information on this, or is it like the clerical error saying her autopsy occurred before she was even found? At the time Annie talked to Grace a few weeks ago, the county had stopped responding to them, and of course, they're worried it means they've also stopped investigating. The family has asked the Montana Department of Justice to investigate or intervene, but they're not doing so, and the family is under the impression it's because the county isn't cooperating. Honestly, I don't see why the county would be given that option. After everything this family's been through, because of the county coroner and the county investigators, why do they even still have this case? They've admitted there was a gap in the early investigation because of their own personnel issues, so why can't someone else take over this case? Based on the investigation Grace and other family members have done on their own, they believe Kaysera died the day she went missing or that night, though the cause of death is still not determined. But if Kaysera died five days before she was found, where was her body for those five days? She was found in a residential neighborhood, and being on the corner, that house saw a lot of foot traffic. A man from the neighborhood who was on a motorized scooter told the family that he passed that yard frequently and never saw Kaysera's body. And this is a neighborhood that's a nice one. They have well-kept yards. Wouldn't the homeowner have been in his yard or looked back there once in five days? When did he last mow? When did he weed? When did he sit out there? It seems inconceivable that Kaysera was there that whole time and no one saw her. And I don't mean to be insensitive, but it was five days in August. It was in the lower 80s, according to AccuWeather. People were out walking and jogging and mowing their yards. Did no one smell anything? I mean, come on. I read a snarky online comment saying that hypothermia seems to be an epidemic amongst indigenous people in Bighorn County because of how often that is the determined cause of death. But Kaysera went missing in August, so that's off the table. What is happening here? Selena, not afraid, went missing more than four months after Kaysera, and her cause of death has already been released as hypothermia. Is hypothermia the ruled cause because they couldn't figure out what else it could be? But in this case with Kaysera, they don't have that to fall back on, so now they just don't have an answer? Is that what's happening? We do know the county is capable of doing better than they did with Kaysera's case. We saw it in Selena's case. There were issues but she was found during an official grid search. I don't believe there was ever a search for Kaysera that the family didn't organize. The media was contacted about Selena's case. Word got out that she was missing. The family has been given more information than Kaysera's family can get. Looking at the reporting, the police and the investigators 
are talking to the media more, even though Selena's case is as much an open investigation as Kisera's is. Why is this happening for Selena's case? I'm glad it did. Do not get me wrong there. But why not for Kisera? And we don't know. Selena is related to Sheriff Larry Big Hair, but I'm under the impression it's an extended relation. Maybe it's because by January, when Selena went missing, they had their department reorganization done. But maybe it's because Kaysera's family made so much noise, they knew they needed to do better later. I generally look at similar cases in the area or ones that have similar threads when I'm covering a case. I like to see how things are handled. And I've actually noticed a thread that goes through all of them including Selena and Kaysera and Henny Scott, and that's victim-blaming. I mean, I see it in many, many cases of teenage girls and young women. We are a victim-blaming society, particularly when it comes to women. This idea that bad decisions are at the root of these cases, not violence. It doesn't matter if violence was the cause of death. It's really that she was out somewhere she shouldn't have been, or she was drinking, or she was engaging in quote-unquote, high-risk behaviors. I like to use the unlocked door analogy to illustrate why finding fault with the victim is pointless. If you are the victim of a home invasion, does it matter if you left your door unlocked or if they kicked it in? Should you have a right to exist in this world safely, even with your door unlocked? Of course you do. In the end, the police are going to investigate the case just the same. They wouldn't refuse to take your police report because your door was unlocked, right? So why are they not taking missing persons reports or not entering cases into the databases as required by law because a young woman went missing from a party while she was drinking? I like this analogy of the unlocked door for two reasons. One is it makes it clear that the blame lies with the perpetrator and that victim blaming has no place in the decisions made during an investigation. The second is that it underlines that we can understand the harm victim blaming has on an investigation when we talk about doors, but not when we talk about violence against women. The fact that my analogy works is a problem in itself. Now, this victim blaming based on a decision a person makes not only can impede an investigation, but let's zoom out and talk about us doing it in our conversations. We say we're doing it because we need to be aware, we need to be safe, we need to make good decisions. That's all great. But these conversations take away context. These conversations take away nuance. These conversations ignore the trauma, the power dynamics, the colonial violence, the racism, the things that led to that decision to begin with. We're blaming the victim not just for getting killed, but we're blaming them for being traumatized or for being oppressed. If Kaysera was out that night with friends partying, congratulations, you have identified her as an 18-year-old high school student. That is all we learn from this high-risk behavior. It is so frustrating from behind my microphone, where I've actually given myself a headache right now, talking about this and thinking about this, and I still know that is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what these families are dealing with and what Kaysera's family has been dealing with. The family wants to work with the police. This is the only way they're going to get answers. This is the only way they're going to get justice. They're willing to sit down and they're willing to talk. Not only willing, they've been spending half a year asking for it, but they're not getting back that same willingness from the investigators. And honestly, there is little recourse for the family. 
the frequently asked question, who polices the police? Who is holding them accountable to do their jobs? From where the Stops and Bulltail families are standing? No one is. I follow missing and murdered Indigenous women cases. I learned about Kaysera's case from an article about Selena Not Afraid. I also learned about another similar case from the area, that of 14-year-old Henny Scott, who also supposedly died of hypothermia a year before Selena. I'm not kidding when I say we could do this entire year-long series only on cases from Southeast Montana and still have a mile-long queue. As the national and international spotlight on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls grows brighter, there may be some recoiling from the light happening here. Perhaps there's a knee-jerk reaction to deny that there is a problem by being too eager to rule cases accidental. But you clearly do not listen to my podcast, Montana, because I have made this much clear. These families and these advocates, they're not going away. They do not sit down and they do not shut up. The spotlight is here. It's not going anywhere. It's just going to get brighter. What you can do is be an example of how to do it right, not just in Montana for Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, but across the country. I'm going to close out my rant and give you the words of Grace Bulltail. At the March and Rally for Justice for Kaysera, she said, quote, Our Native women don't exist to be abused. Our girls aren't here. Their fate in this life isn't to be killed and forgotten. We're asking justice for our girl. Thank you for listening to Crime Lines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crime Lines Podcast, Twitter at Crime Lines Pod, and Instagram at Crime Lines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. I genuinely thought you had an opportunity for me, like journalism. I thought, this sounds cool. <laughs> this sounds like my ticket to a huge vice show. Sounded like a multi-level marketing scheme, but for drug trafficking. Oh, this is like vice. Like, why am I being like a snitch about this? This is absolutely a story about an important and growing and, and powerful media entity. There are no villains in this story. There's no winners, but there's no villains. I'm Kasia Mihailovich, and this is Cool Mules. 